0: to the explorers, Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. In chapter one of our series on a day in the life of a Tudor era lass, we got some context on the time and place we're time traveling back to. Now we're going to open our eyes and start our morning in Tudor England. Grab some lady straw and your thickest linen. Let's go traveling. As you lay in bed, preparing to wake, you might think you'll be opening your eyes on life in London. But in truth, more than 90% of the population lives rural. Agriculture is our country's bread and butter industry, quite literally. And even those who aren't working farmers do at least some to feed their families. Statistically speaking, very few of us are going to be born into anything even close to nobility. We will spend our lives working the land and working hard. Rise and shine, Tudor lass. Given that we don't have electricity and the sun is all we're likely to have to see clearly by, we'll be rising with the dawn. It's summer, which means we're looking at a 4 a.m. wake time. <laughs> but we tutors don't like a so-called slug-a-bed, so no lying about. There's nothing for it but to get that butt moving. So, what kind of dwelling are we waking up in? In this, as in everything, our wealth and social status will dictate much of our surroundings. Many of us are waking in a timber framed, thatch roofed house with walls filled in with wattle, daub, and, well, probably some creepy crawlies. What is wattle and daub? I'm glad you asked. To make such walls, we hammer a bunch of wooden planks or sticks into the ground, and then we weave wattle thin branches harvested from local trees, in between them. You're essentially weaving yourself a wall. Then you cake the whole thing over with a pungent mix of clay, horse dung, and straw. How delightful! When it dries, though, you have a surprisingly nice, smooth, and draft-proof finish. It's not nearly as rustic as it sounds. Woo, it is brisk up in here. We're in England, after all, which doesn't see a whole lot of balmy days. Whether you're living in a thatch-roofed Tudor cottage, a tiny townhouse, or a fine stone castle, insulation is not what our modern-day sensibilities might prefer. In fancier houses, the walls are probably covered with brightly painted paneling and tapestries, which helps keep things warm in winter. We Tudors do not like a bare stone wall, Most of us don't have glass windows, though. They're very much a luxury product. So we'll rise to cool morning air working its way around the oilcloth shutter we use to cover our windows. They're mostly to keep out the worst of the rain and wind. So, yeah, you're gonna want to rug up. Or sleep close to our main heat source, the fire.
1: Here's Ruth. So at the beginning of the Tudor period, almost everyone, um, with a very few exceptions in castles and monasteries, almost everyone lived in a space that was open right up to the roof. There there weren't floors, you know, up and down. It was just one space from the ground floor right up into the apex of the roof. And in the center of that space would be a fire on the floor. This is pretty efficient from a heating
0: point of view. You don't need a huge bonfire to heat your entire cottage, and these central fires make for a convenient 360-degree cooking. The problem is that the smoke rises up and hangs in a sting-inducing, airless layer above you. That is why, at least for the first portion of the Tudor period, most don't have an upstairs level in their houses, and we are sleeping on the floor. Anyone who's ever gone on a badly planned camping trip will know this can be an uncomfortable situation, but in Tudor times, it's not as bad as it might sound.
1: They have almost no furniture everybody's on the floor. But that means you need to make the floor comfortable. So people laid rushes on the floor, a big thick layer of dried rushes. It's like living on a permanent mattress, you know? Imagine a really thick carpet or or some, you know, on cushions on the floor. That's what people were basically living on. Rushes are a kind
0: of reed, very plentiful, accessible and cheap to source, which are collected
1: from nearby waterways. Rushes are comfortable to sleep on. They are very clean. Um, You harvest them out uh, late summer, before they start to dry off. When they're still quite sort of you know fresh and green, you don't you don't wait for them to to brow. You cut them and then you dry them. Um, They need to dry out completely, and then you can lay them as they are. It's it's best not to sort of wildly scatter them. You lay them in bundles, yeah, or you weave them into something that's gonna a mat that's gonna you know not go anywhere, not move around. Instead of just
0: throwing rushes down on the floor, most people are taking the time to braid them into floor rugs. Time-consuming, you betcha. But loose rushes are a nightmare for skirts. No one likes bits of reed stuck in their hems, you know? Rushes have a decent air pocket inside them, making a bed of rushes almost like nature's blow-up mattress.
1: Because they're a hollow stem with pith, if you, if you look at what a, a reed is, it's a, it's a hollow stem with a sort of a piss inside it but still a, a sort of air gap in the centre even under good pressure that is creating an air pocket so it's very very insulative and also bouncy and squashy so you've got the comfort of the of the slight give and you've also got the insulative warmth of all those little air pockets
0: Sometimes rush floors are swept out and replaced all the way down to their foundations, but that's a lot of work, so most people freshen things up by putting down a new layer of rushes over the old. The very bottom layer may have been with your family for, well, quite a long time, which is worrying, given that this is the floor we sleep on, eat on, cook on, you name it. In 1515, a Dutchman named Desiderius Erasmus wrote that many a floor is renewed.
1: So imperfectly
0: that the bottom layer is left undisturbed, sometimes for 20 years, harboring expectoration, vomiting, the leakage of dogs and men, ale droppings, scraps of fish, and other abominations not fit to be mentioned. Just keep in mind that this guy was extremely homesick when he wrote this and not a general fan of England, so he wasn't in a very charitable mood. But he might have a point. When your dog pees on your carpet, there's that part of you that just knows it seeped down into layers that your scrub brush just will never reach. Aren't rushes the same? In a word, no.
1: The surface of each each stem is a very sheer surface. Uh, which dirt has trouble sticking to. So if you drop food or anything else onto rushes, you know, it doesn't soak into the rushes. It tends to sort of like just fall between uh, and stay quite sort of separate. So cleaning is quite an easy thing to do. The other thing to remember is that these rushes would be put on bare earth. They're not being put upon stone flags. They're not being put upon a wooden floorboard. They're being put on bare earth, And that means that natural composting is going to happen at the base. It's going to happen quite slowly because it's quite a dry environment. Um, You've got a roof over your head, obviously. But very slowly, the bacteria and small animals within the soil are going to be breaking down at the base of the rushes. It's a slow, dry, quiet, and very clean smelling form of composting.
0: Ruth experimented with a rush floor when she worked on a documentary called Tudor Monastery Farm. She found that if she laid the rushes two inches thick in an enclosed room and wet them occasionally, they stayed green and fresh. When she went to clean up the floor after six months of people walking, eating, drinking, and sleeping on it, she said the bottom layer was clean as anything. The same can't be said for your modern-day synthetic carpet. Natural Tudor products one, modern products zero. But as the period goes on, we see a newfangled
1: technology take root, the chimney. During the Tudor period, we take the technology that had been used in castles and in monasteries for some time, and we start bringing it into our houses, and that's called the chimney. Um, The first ones were just sort of ramshackle affairs, often made of wood and lath and tile. And and, and we're sort of quite large uh, spaces, not sort of containments in some way. But gradually they get smaller and and more solid and become brick or stone. When you put a chimney in, the fire inside it uh, draws oxygen from the base and then the spent gases go up the chimney. That's I mean, that's how they work. They draw in clean, cold air at the base and propel it, because it's hot, straight up. And what happens to the heat is that 70% of the heat goes straight up the chimney. So A a fire in a chimney is only throwing 30% of its heat into the room. Now, that has lots and lots of impacts. Chimneys
0: do a great job of getting smoke out of our cottages, but they also suck up most of the heat. Suddenly, the floor is a cold place to sleep, so we'll take our rush mattresses up onto wooden frames. They are suspended there by a rope strung back and forth lengthways across the frame to create a kind of mattress hammock. If this rope gets loose, you're going to have a very saggy sleep situation. So you'd better do as the tutors do and make sure to, as we still say in our era, sleep tight. The word bed doesn't mean the frame your mattress sits on. It means the mattress itself. The humble amongst us are probably sleeping on a large, straw-stuffed pillowcase mattress. It's not that bad if you choose your straw wisely. There's a whole family of plants known as bed straw. The finest of them is called gallium verum, or lady straw. It's soft, smells nice, and helps repel rodents. Your mattress might also be made of flock or wool. But if you're a fine lady, you might even have a feather bed. In fact, you might have several feather mattresses stacked up on top of each other. Well, aren't you a princess and the pea? If we're noble women, we'll probably sleep in a four-poster, a bed whose frame has four posts, a ceiling made of cloth or wood called a tester, and nice, thick, closable curtains. Our windows don't have curtains, but you know our beds sure do. This bed, no matter what it's made of, is likely to be one of our most prized possessions. It's one of the things most frequently bequeathed in people's wills. William Shakespeare will give his best beds to his wife and his eldest married daughter. He could die knowing they'd be comfortable, but also that they'd have some belongings of true value. A high-quality, fully decked-out four-poster can cost as much as a small-time farmer's holding. Think about it. When your house doesn't have great insulation, it's like a little luxury cave. Dark, warm, and snug. And it affords you some privacy, a thing we are unlikely to get a lot of. Most Tudor homes don't have corridors. To get from one part of the house to another, people just walk through rooms. No one's yet come up with the idea of servants' quarters, so the whole household is often sleeping in the same space. A holdover from the Middle Ages. No private bedroom for you. That four-poster bed with thick, probably woolen curtains blocks out chills, but also farts, snores, and, well, whatever else might be happening around you. The chimney not only gets us tutors up off the now-drafty floor, but changes the way we build our houses. Here's Ruth. So you start
1: chopping up living spaces into much smaller, into rooms, into separate little rooms. However, you can also put in floors because there's no smoke up in that roof space now so suddenly that roof space becomes usable so instead of having one big space you've suddenly got a multitude of little spaces including extra little spaces above a first floor a second floor possibly so it's a major change in uh, the whole way we organize our living uh, and beds are just part of that huge upheaval
0: next time, we'll say our morning prayers, find our family's privy, and explore how we might be dealing with our monthly flow. See you then. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of my wonderful patrons who really help keep the show going. My newest pirate queens, Elena, Rebecca Y., and Claire M. And my newest lady presidents, Britt H., Carrie V., and Jade. My boss ladies, Monique L., Bethany, Bronwyn, Elizabeth, Grace, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Hillary and Brian, Melissa, Michelle, Nuria, Rebecca, Tanya, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian. My adventuresses, Helena, Alexis V, Alexis M, Carlos, Iris, Jessica R, Jessica S, Karen, Amber, Kelly, Lizzie, Phil, Samantha, and Stephanie. My warrior queens, Lori and Avery, and my lady pharaohs, all three of whom are named Courtney. Love you, Courtney's. For just a few dollars a month, patrons get prizes in the mail, early access to my episodes, interviews, polls, Q&As, and more, as well as exclusive bonus episodes you won't find anywhere else. To find out more, go to my website. A huge thanks to Ruth Goodman for time-traveling with us. Make sure to check out all her work on the Tudor era and her newest book, The Domestic Revolution. The period-appropriate guitar music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of John Sales. For show notes for this episode, including a transcript, images, and a list of my sources, go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com. You'll also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Much love to Paul Gablonsky for my theme music and logo and to John Armstrong for his vocal stylings.